banished from the garden, and they had to work. And suddenly the work that they had been given before the fall, God had given them work to do, to subdue the earth, to, to, to steward it. But the work went from being a joyous endeavor to being one that was thwarted by our, all sorts of trouble and thorns and difficulty. And it doesn't take very long into that story for that trouble to escalate to the level that people are even taking lives. Murder is introduced into the story, and it continues on. All sorts of wickedness, and as the story of Genesis continues, pretty soon God looks at the world and all he sees is wickedness. But there is one man whose name is Noah, and Noah, of course, still has a king. Now, mind you, God's rule and reign are over all things, whether people acknowledge them or not. Noah acknowledged it. And God called him, and he and his family were spared, and the world kind of, in a sense, started anew. But it didn't take very long even then for evil to again rear its ugly head, as the people said, we're going to build a kingdom for ourselves rather than obey God. And so God chose Abraham. And Abraham, and as Pastor John um, over the past years has done a series on Genesis, You can appreciate all the dysfunctions in that family, right? As they went through. But nonetheless, God continued to be faithful. And he delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians and brought them into the land of Canaan. So here they are. They've arrived in the land of of Canaan. and, And God has been good to them. Has delivered them in spite of their patterns and cycles of rebellion. Now, in order to understand the, the book of Judges, it's important to understand that the land of Canaan was a tribal region. So that means there wasn't an overarching government before the Israelites took over. And as the saying goes, unless there is repeated and continual effort to change direction, you tend to simply drift along with the culture that is around you. You become assimilated into its patterns and the ways that it operates. And if the culture around you doesn't need Jesus, and if the culture around you has a way of operating every man for himself or every tribe for themselves, then it's really easy to fall into that pattern and to think, eh, maybe I don't have a king. Maybe I'm the king. Maybe, maybe it's up to me. The book of Judges is a story about rebellion in many cases. And let me just read a couple of different sections from it for us to get a sense as to what is going on. Begin at Judges chapter 2, and I'll read verses 10 through 15. This is God's word. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that had been done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord. And served the Baals and the Asherah. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, 
And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. And then I want to turn to chapter 8 to just give a, a sense of that distress that they were in. That um, chapter 8 is, a, or really chapter 7 and chapter 8 are a story of, of Gideon. And he is someone who is chosen for deliverance, and God uses him. And then afterwards, we have this story in verses 20 through, to, through 28 about, about the king or the lack thereof. It says this, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you, the Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their head no more, and the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. And then the end of Judges offers a summary of this time in redemptive history. Verse 25 of chapter 21 says this, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's pray. God, as we think of our need for a king, our need of someone that we follow with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, help us as we look at your word to, to learn from the mistakes of your people in the past, that we would not repeat them, and to also learn of your faithfulness to stubborn-hearted, rebellious people, and that we would appreciate your mercy to us today, too. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. Marley was dead. To begin with, there was no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know of my own knowledge what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadliest piece of ironmongery in the trade. But the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it, or the country's done for. You will therefore allow me to repeat emphatically that Marley was as dead as a doornail. 
You probably recognize those words from Charles Dickens' book, The Christmas Carol. There was no life left. Everyone knew it. And of course, in The Christmas Carol, not only was Marley dead, but that was, in a sense, an illustration for the dead man walking. Not that Scrooge was on death row, mind you. But rather that Scrooge was simply his heart was so shriveled up and dead that there was no life in it either. And I often thought that this could be, in some sense, Dickens' translation of the book of Judges. The Israelites were spiritually dead as a doornail. There were not signs of life anywhere. Another generation rose up and there were the parents that had seen the deliverance of the Lord, that had obeyed, that had followed. And this new generation has risen up, and they don't know. And it isn't, I'm sure it isn't that they didn't hear. It's that they didn't see it. And so they have, they have rejected the faith. They have fallen into a tribal existence. And one of the realities that existed for the Israelites is that what they were called to do is to come and to gather to worship. That was what was to draw them together, that they would worship together. And so there's a sense that what has happened is they have stopped going to church. They just don't attend anymore. We each have our own little existence, our own little life, or maybe to put it more bluntly, the classic country song by Montgomery Gentry had the line, You do your thing, I'll do mine. You have your values, you have your beliefs, I'll have mine. And so what they did is they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They exchanged the Lord as their king for the Baals and the Asherahs and the idols of the time and idols of that place. And the challenge that exists for the church and has throughout time is that same sort of question, do we see that we need a king? Do we see that we have a king? See, this is a different angle on the story in some sense. It isn't that there is a a local king that they are rejecting. They're rejecting God, certainly. But there's a sense of, we'd rather there just wasn't a king. We choose winter and never Christmas, to use the words of C.S. Lewis. It's not that you're longing, you're under this dictator that says you must not have Christmas. Rather, it's everyone saying, we like winter. Let's have it always stay. We choose to not serve the Lord. And in the midst of their rebellion and the tragedy of it, there are times that it becomes so bad that the judgment becomes so difficult that they do cry out. And they say, God, would you deliver us? We need a king. Maybe a temporary one to solve our problems and then he can go away. But we want a king for this moment, for this problem, for those people. 
for this situation. And I'm reminded of the drift that is often true of the Christian life, is that difficulty and trials come into our lives which drive us to the Lord, and then when everything seems to be okay in our lives, we can tend to just drift away. And then as we drift away, life certainly doesn't get better in that place of rebellion or rejection of the Lord. And so we say, oh, wait a minute, God, this situation popped up, I need you. And so God hears and he helps us, and then the drift begins again. And the cycles of we're drifting downward, we cry out to the Lord, he delivers, we drift downward, maybe they don't don't happen in days. Maybe sometimes they do happen in days, but sometimes there's a pattern of years where there's this sense of the Lord delivers and then we forget. The Lord delivers and then we forget. And what are modern day ways of forgetting? What are modern day ways that we choose to say, I don't have a king? What are the ways that we fend for ourselves spiritually? Where we say, well, I can get the things that I want. I can get the things that I need. What are the idols of our time and place? There's, maybe you live in a different community than I do, but there are no bales set up in the yards of my community. There's certainly plenty of snowmen and pr- plenty of Christmas lights. There are no bales. What are the idols? What are the idols of our time and place? There's certainly the idol of personal ability to make your own choices and to have your own values. As one person put it in the news this week, oh, in that moment I wasn't living according to my truth. In our world there is a sense of there is not the truth, but there is my truth. We have made ourselves idols. That's one idol that is common. Another idol that is certainly common is materialism. I will have things. I will take things. I will consider my value to be based on the things that I have. If I do not feel good about my life, I can go and I can make a a transaction with somebody else that will make me feel better. The Mall of America specializes in this. If you do not feel good about yourself, you just walk to whatever, whatever play, thing they're selling, and they will sell you happiness. They will sell you joy. You take your credit card out, and you slide it, and they smile at you. They hand you the things. They say thank you, and your life suddenly has been made better. And until about that time, you walk out of the store, and you see the next store, which has the next thing to make your life better that idol has that moment of satisfaction. And so we live in a world where idolatry takes the place of the king. Jesus and his kingship, the Lord and his rule, has been replaced with idols. And the idols can't do anything. And we need to return to the king. If there's a message of the book of Judges that goes over and over again, it would be return to the king. Well, what would it look like to return to the king? Well, the first thing that I want us to note is that the king appears to be missing. 
Judges 21, verse 25. There was no king in Israel. Judges chapter 8. The people come to Gideon, and they say to Gideon, Will you be a king? And Gideon says, No, you've got a king. But let me make an idol for you. And I, I just thought, as I read this, this is the story of the people at, the Mount, of Mount, at Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, right? Those of you that remember that story, the people said, we have no God. Moses has gone up to the mountain, he's talking to God, and Aaron is just like, oh, well, bring me your gold. They bring all the gold and they make a golden calf, and they set it up to worship. How does that work for them? How does idolatry work for them? Not that well. It crashes and burns on them. And one of the things that's just so interesting, when the king is missing, people create alternative realities. And it's almost humorous. So the story of Gideon, I want to just zoom in on that story for a moment. So it starts with Gideon who is hiding from the Midianites. He's hiding from his enemies. And the Lord shows up and says, or an angel of the Lord shows up and says, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. And he's just like, um, where's this person you're talking to? Like, I'm hiding. Um, and and there's, there's this sense that I know my idols are powerless, and so my life is reduced to living in the shadows. I know my idols are destructive, and my life is reduced to living in the shadows because everyone might see that they're destroying me. And one of the things that's happening in our culture at this moment is we are being encouraged to live more and more in the shadows, to live with less and less truth, to live with less and less community. Don't be connected to the church. Pull away into the shadows where you can live in your own reality with your own idols. And we know it doesn't work, but we're doubling down on it as a culture. Pull away. Live your own life. Live your own reality. And it's not a good life. Life in the shadows is really difficult. And the Lord comes to Gideon and says, Come on! And Gideon says, I don't want to lead. And one of the ironies that exists is that there's, there's nobody that wants to step up. Nobody wants to be a king because they know they can't be a good king. It, it's almost as if there, there are stories. There are stories of the king. And everyone knows of the king, the true king's power and his glory. But the stories have become so faint there are only whispers that are left there that people do not have the faith to act. They don't have the faith to do. And if you have a God that doesn't act, that doesn't help you, that you don't believe in, then you won't act either. And sometimes I think this is where the rubber meets the road in our lives, is that we, we can say we have a king, but when you have a king, you have to act like it. It doesn't simply do to say we have a tradition of a king. No, it must be that you have one and that you allow that king to speak into your life, that you allow that king to lead. 
And if the king is only there as a, as a stuffed head, if that king is just a king that he's on the wall watching but doesn't do anything, then you won't act. You won't believe that there's deliverance for God's people. You'll just be paralyzed. And we get this sense of the paralysis. What are we going to do? And when the king is missing and the people are paralyzed, Judges just is this, this book loaded of terrible people that God is using. And I, I want you to just appreciate the irony of it for a moment, that if there are not righteous people that are willing to serve the Lord and to stand up and say, here I am, send me, then the Lord says, well, I don't need righteous people. I can take anyone and use them for deliverance for my people. And the, the irony of these judges, there's the left-handed guy. And left-handed guys were known, that was, like if you were left-handed, and nothing against those of you that are left-handed, this is not a biblical thing, it was a cultural thing. Um, if you were left-handed, that meant you were morally compromised. Like that was the way that you, you thought about it. A left-handed person in that culture would have been thought of as morally compromised. Um, need we mention Samson? Like, talk about a guy who really didn't have things together. And there's a fascinating account in chapters 17 and 18 about this guy who got his own priest. He created his own, his own church. He's like, well, you know, nobody's going, nobody's going to worship at the, at the tabernacle. The, the, the worship of the true God has stopped. But I need, I need, I need to be blessed and so it would be not unlike one of you saying, well, I guess I'm going to hire my own pastor, you know? Um, you'd have to have some deep pockets. Um, but nonetheless, you'd say, all right, I'm going to hire my own pastor, and we're going to build a church building, and we're going to set up a shrine in there, and my family's going to be blessed because we have our own church. And thankfully, since we're paying the, uh, the guy who's the priest for us, um, you know, life's going to go well for us. And it... That works well for you until the guy next door, chapter 18, sees that you've got a church thing going on, and he says, hey, I want that, and he offers your priest more than you can pay him, and says, hey, we've got better benefits at our religious corporation over here. You come on over and work for us. And I think it's okay to smile and even to laugh, but this is what happens when people have no God. There's a sense that all of us recognize, whether we want to or not, that we live in God's world. You look out and you live in God's world. And there are certain things that are true and you know they're true because you live in God's world. And again, this is part of our cultural narrative at this moment. People may claim that they have their own truth, that they get to determine what it is, but the reality is that everyone knows there are certain things that are universally true. And that people are made in God's image with dignity and purpose. Maybe people are conflicted about this on some level, but they just intuitively know there's something there. There are things that people know because they live in God's world that they know about God. And they may be in denial about them, they may be inconsistent in their thought or their action, but there are things that people know. And they say, I was made for worship. And we see it in our world. We were made 
for worship. And if it's not the true God, it will be someone. It will be something. And the question for us then is, well, what will that be? Of course, the answer, um, even as we gathered here this morning and welcomed some new members to Grace Covenant, the answer is that our confession is of Jesus Christ and of our salvation in him. Our confession is that we are a part of his kingdom, part of his church. We gather as a part of his kingdom and a part of his church to worship him. There there is a a God-shaped hole, and it is our duty It is our duty, it is our responsibility to see the king and to say there is only one place where this joy can be found. And it is in the king who is there. So if we have the two contrasts, there's the king who's missing, then we have the king who is there. What does the king who is there do? And I want you to just for a moment appreciate the mercy that exists in this text. There is no reason in the world that is is present in this text why god would do anything to help his people there 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 doesn't seem to be even much of a shred of good that is left there they're in rebellion but the lord in his mercy in his mercy he sends judgment And in our world, those things often do not go together well, but I want to make the argument, and I believe that the Bible presents it clearly, that those two things go together beautifully. Because there is ultimate judgment that comes for everyone. And immediate judgment that happens before the ultimate judgment, if it is useful for repentance is beautiful and is mercy somebody that comes to you and says there is a consequence for your behavior right now is throwing up barriers on the road to hell and so what we see in the book of judges is that the true king who the people have not acknowledged who seems to be missing is there all the time and he's running a barricade business and in his barricade business he has the midianites and the Amalekites, and all the other ites that exist in the land of Canaan. And he says, you're in my barricade business. I've got rebellion over there. I want you to go cause them trouble. I want them to be brought to the end of themselves. And the purpose of being brought to the end of yourself is so that you will realize that you need a king. So that you'll turn away from all of your foolish idols And you'll look to the Lord, and lo and behold, the barricades are being put up. And the people of Israel cry out to the Lord, and the Lord hears them. He's like, at barricade number one, the people are crying out and saying, help us, Lord. We need to send someone to barricade number one. Samson, barricade number one. You're just like, Samson? He's not qualified. God says, you're at barricade number one anyway. Oh, barricade number two. We've got a problem with the Midianites over there. We're going to send Gideon over there. Gideon's like, not me. And God says, okay, get an army. Gets a big army. God says, oh, that's too many. People will think that you're powerful. They need to know I'm powerful. And so Gideon with 300 men goes and has an amazing and unexpected victory 
that should only be attributed to the Lord, and the people at barricade number two say, hey, Gideon, be our king. And Gideon's just like, I mean, you can just imagine the dude pulling his hair out. I don't know if he had much left, but he's just yanking his hair out like, guys, it was me and 300 other people. We didn't really even do much. It was the Lord. The Lord delivers. He hears. The people cry out. They cry out toward heaven. And in that, there is a sense that even on the darkest day, the Lord hears. And the book of Judges ends on what I think is one of the darkest stories that exists in all of Scripture. The Benjaminites, things had gotten so bad, they were so wicked, that, that sexual assault and murder were acceptable and normal to them, and they even defended it. And in a moment of moral clarity, the Israelites said, this cannot be. And they go and they fight, and much of that tribe is destroyed. And you'd say, here's a dark moment, like there's no light. And there's this moment where the whole nation mourns. And the whole nation stands there and says, how did we get here? And even in then, there is, there is this hope. Now, listen, this is not the way that you're supposed to do it in modern day, but, you know, these, these sons of Benjamin, they had no wives, and so they went and they raided and got them some wives. You might say, well, that's an interesting story in and of itself. You're just going to raid your enemies to grab wives for some of your guys. But the point of that story was that otherwise that tribe was going to perish and disappear. Because they made a pact. We won't, we won't let our daughters marry into that group of hooligans. But there's, there's this sense of, even on the darkest day, there's, there's got to be hope. There's got to be a future somewhere. There's got to be a king who's coming. I think of the dark days, and for some in our world, that is today. There are dark days of persecution and famine and concern for life. There is a sense in our world that there is idolatry that spreads and is everywhere. And if we're honest, there is idolatry that exists in our hearts and our lives as well. And maybe we need the diagnosis, as Dickens put it, Marley is dead. Dead as a doornail. Judges 21, 25 says the Israelites were spiritually dead. Dead as a doornail. But that's not where God leaves his people. That's not the end for us. That's not the end for God's kingdom. And as Christians this Christmas... If you look around in your community and you see, you see the cute nativity scenes in people's yards or you see various signs of life, 
I want you to appreciate that the signs of life are not simply in traditional ism, as Christmas is full, filled with traditions, which if meaningful and have faith underneath them and faith driving them can be wonderful. But sometimes we slip into this traditionalism of believing that those things, those cute stories, are really what the meaning is. And God's Word kind of blows up the idea of a cute story. It says there's nothing cute about idolatry and rebellion and running from the Lord and rejecting His goodness. There's nothing cute about running around and saying, I like it always winter and never Christmas. There's nothing good to be found in rejecting the king or saying the king is missing. <laughs> but there is glory and there is hope when you look and you see and you submit by faith and you believe that there is and always has been and always will be a king. And on the darkest day of human history, and sometimes we think that moment maybe in our immediate world, and there have been people throughout time that have thought maybe they lived in that moment, that darkest day of human history. And there are many dark days. But even on those darkest days, when God throws up the barricade and the people cry out and they say, deliver us! The Lord answers, and at Christmas, when God's people, after hundreds of years of silence, were looking for a prophet, were looking for a king, they were crying out at the barricades of Rome and the barricades of other places and other times. And in all of those times when God's people cried out to him, he heard them and he responded. And so for us, when we today cry out to the Lord and say, we need a king, his answer to us is, I hear you. I am your king. I have delivered you, and I will be with you. Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you for your word, and thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus. Thank you that his rule and reign is over all things. Help us in this Christmas season to look to you, our Lord and our King. We pray. Amen. As we respond to God's word, let's stand and sing hymn number 196. It will also be up on the screen. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. <laughs> 